the Gospel according to Luke, chapter number 22. Of course, you're looking for that question, remember, especially as you look at the title of the sermon this morning, which is, Who is Greater? See if you see it in this verse. For weather is greater, so it's right away, and if you look at your margin, we would probably phrase that today in a little more modern English, for who is greater? That's the question. He that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth? Is, not he that sitteth, is it not he that sitteth at meat? But Jesus says, I am among you as one that serveth. We'll ponder those words and some others here in just a few moments. Right now, let's bow our heads together and have a word of prayer and ask God to bless us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day you gave to us. We thank you, our gracious Father, that you love, enough, love us enough to call us into your presence in a special way on Sunday that we may uh, worship you in spirit and in truth. We understand that we're able to worship you anytime, anywhere, all the time. But we also understand that there is a sense in which you call for the gathering of your people. You set aside a special day. And now so many folk have gathered in response to that, and some who couldn't make it out physically or for what other reason uh, uh, are at home and are able to watch uh, online. We're grateful for any way that we can disseminate God's Word and give people the opportunity to be brought into the presence of God in that special sense in which you call us as we gather together in corporate worship. Thank you, Lord, for the reports that we heard this past week of two children saved in the school. And we know it's because layer upon layer and line upon line and precept upon precept, the gospel is given and given and given until the time comes when the child understands it fully and opens his or her heart to Jesus Christ. We want to see that happening on a regular basis. We want to see it happening with children. We want to see it happening with adults. We want to see it even in places that we'll not know about it when it happens because maybe it's a listener uh, online or through the recorded medium. We just pray, Father, that what we do could enjoy your blessing. That's really what we're asking for this morning. We know we're sinful people. We know we don't deserve anything. We know it's a high and holy calling that you give to each of us, one that's undeserved. But since you have extended grace to us, we make bold to come into your presence to ask for your blessing. In Jesus' holy and wonderful name, amen. Well, I think by now you've caught on to the fact, but I like to say it just because if we have a visitor or we have someone listening for the first time through some other format, that our Sunday morning series, for the most part, that we've been working on is called Penetrating Questions of Jesus. So if you were to go through the gospel and look for this, some, the gospels and look for this sometime, you would find a, an amazing assortment of questions that Jesus asked. And he asked them to different people. He asked them to his disciples. He asked them to his detractors. Uh, there are just many times when Jesus, the master, rabbi, the master, the master teacher he is. Teacher, that's what that word means. Teacher, Jesus was a teacher. And Jesus certainly knew how to take a powerful question, a pointed question, and direct it and use it for maximum value. So we have sort of zeroed in on about 25 of those so that we don't uh, go forever. We can't do them all. And uh, this morning we find another of those questions. As I said earlier, you find it in verse number 27. Hence the title of the message this morning is, Who is Greater? Now to set this a bit in context before we dive into things this morning, we are still in the Passion Week. And, you know, sometimes I just am amazed at the providence of God um, it, it just, I, I don't know why we should be amazed. I guess we should be more expectant. But in cases like this, we plan ahead. We don't always know how it's going to fall or what's going to happen. And yet here it's worked out. And of course, once I kind of saw this direction, I've sort of even concentrated and doubled down on this. But where we are in the scheme of things really enables us to use a lot of questions that are coming right about the time of the year that we're trying to prepare for. Do you know that Easter... Sunday is four Sundays from today. And that's alarming, really, <laughs> you know, because I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure you are. Uh, but it, I just, I want to be prepared for it. I, 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 you know, folks, over the years, this has been a burden. I've communicated so many times that in our rat race society, it's so easy just to sort of all of a sudden cruise in and all, it's Christmas, it's Easter. And we really haven't had the opportunity to prepare our hearts very much for that. 
So we're still in the Passion Week, and we're still on Thursday of the Passion Week, and the actual setting for this is when Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples on Thursday and what we call the Last Supper. We pick up on another of those questions of Jesus. I want to tell you, and I may use this word a number of times, that I feel that this word is a very embarrassing moment for the disciples. Another embarrassing moment from the standpoint that we already looked at a question last week when Jesus, remember, took the three and said, would you pray with me? And then he had to come back to them and they couldn't pray with him and they couldn't watch with him and he had to say to them, what, could you not watch with me one hour? And you know there had to be something of the sting of rebuke in that, that you couldn't do something as simple as that. And what an embarrassing moment that had to be for Peter, James, and John, and perhaps even the other disciples. And now you have something else. We have something recorded for us in Luke. This is interesting because all the Gospels tell us the story of the Last Supper. John's presentation is different. It suits his purpose better. But in the, what we call the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have, roughly speaking, the same presentation, but... Here's something that only Luke tells us about, and it's an embarrassing moment because this age-old argument about who is the greatest, right there in the context of Thursday night of Passion Week, the Lord's Supper, it comes up. Look at our opening verse in this, or verse 23, rather. Um, ver- I'm sorry, verse 24. It says, there was also a strife among them which should be accounted the greatest. That's embarrassing. It really is. And I hope this morning that what I'm able to successfully transmit to each of us is how embarrassing that is for us when we act that very same way. And the disciples, they're just, they're just such good mirrors of us. I mean, they just reflect people that have their foibles, their failings, and their sinful nature. And they did things just like we do things, and these things are recorded in the Bible not to poke at them, but to give us insight into ourselves and how human nature really is. I say it's the age-old argument because, do you know, you'll have this, and I'm sure most people have already caught on to this, you'll have this recorded before. We won't turn at this point, but back in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 and 34, and then following you have a reference to this very same thing. In fact, in that very context, it says there was a dispute. And we have here Luke telling us there was a strife. So back in Mark chapter 9, earlier, obviously, than where we are now, because this is kind of late in the going, there was a dispute among them about this very subject, who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what's really interesting is in, in Matthew's rendition of this, he's recording it in Matthew chapter 19, they come to the, Jesus with the question. If you were to look at Matthew 18, 1, you would find that the disciples are coming to Jesus. Now, this is pretty uh, bold of a question, you know, to, to pick up on a word that Pastor Dave was reminding us about here several times ago when he was preaching on Wednesday. This takes a bit of kutzpah, you know. Now you come to Jesus and you say, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Can you imagine that? But again, as I say, they just kind of reflect how we tend to be and the things they talked about and the things they argued about and the things that they fussed over. Kind of the same things we often see in our own life. And so with incredible patience because Jesus is the master teacher and it doesn't seem that Jesus ever lost the opportunity to mentor people and especially the disciples and so he never misses an opportunity he does it with incredible grace and incredible patience when he turns their own question on them instead of it being the earlier question where they come to Jesus and say who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven Jesus asks them, all right, think about this. You're going to have another argument about this. We've been through this before. This is sort of what I'm trying to portray is what's going on. Okay, if you guys are going to argue about this again, and I've taught you about this before, then let me ask you a question. Who is greater? And then he begins to give his teaching again and this is what we want to jump in on but I think you see why I think it's a bit of another embarrassing moment for them that that issue would come up again 
when it should have already been settled. Let's talk about three things. So, fellas, if you want to bring up that first thought right now, I'm going to pose these as questions sort of for us to think about or for points for us to think about. What does this reveal? The fact that they had this strife. Well, first of all, I want to concentrate on that verse, verse number 24. It says there was also a strife. I want you for a moment, before I try to unfold or answer much more of the the question that I'm posing, what, what, what does this reveal about them and us, this strife that they were having? What does it reveal? I want to say a little something about the word strife. What's really interesting is when you study this word, it might be in a different context, you would just have the simple word that means strife. Okay, we aren't going into the technical aspects. You might just have the simple word that means strife. But this is not the case here. You have a compound word, as the original language is so fond of doing, which combines with this simple word for strife, a word that you know. Because on occasion, we talk about agape love and we talk about phileo love, right? Pretty much everybody knows that. And we talk about the fact that the agape love, well, that's God's love. That's the highest form of love. And the the phileo love is kind of the love of friends, the love of affection. That's what that is. You know what? Onto this simple word for strife, you have a compound made by attaching to it that word. And it comes out this way if you want to bring the significance of it out. A fondness, a fondness to fight or argue. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. We need to outgrow that if we have it. Because I think you do go through this in life. I think sometimes when you're younger, you just love a good fight. And then as you go along, you kind of realize that I'm too close to any fight right now. And I don't claim any perfection, I'll tell you that. Far from it. But I I am pleased in my own life that I feel like I often hear Jack say in Sunday school, I you know, I don't look I don't want any fight. I, I just I mean, you do what you have to do, you take a stand where you have to take a stand, you you do what you have to do, right? It's part of the part of the the job description of being a Christian. You you have certain things you have to just know you believe and you stand there. But wow, if you can just avoid strife, if a church can just avoid strife, and when we do have questions that come up that maybe we have differences of thoughts or opinions on, our approach to it is not that we like to scrap, That's kind of what this word means. A fondness to kind of just ready to get into it, ready to scrap, ready to argue with someone else. That doesn't speak well of any context, any Christian, any church. It doesn't speak well. And presumably, one of the reasons that, or a key reason that we realize this is because what's at the heart of that is pride. Anytime that's how we approach differences of opinion with people or when someone affronts us or anything of that nature, that we are just ready to respond with our dukes up. Well, that doesn't speak very well of us because probably what's offended is our pride and anytime pride controls us, you can mark it down no matter how justified you may feel it with the insult that was given or the affront that was given. If pride takes control, you're not acting as a Christian is supposed to act and neither am I, right? Is Is that true what I just said? Okay, so Proverbs 13.10. This is a great verse if you want to just encapsulate what I've just said. Proverbs 13.10 says this, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised there is wisdom. So we recognize we're really not doing like the song in the song service. We're really not doing like Philippians 2.5 tells us, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a what? A servant. And was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he did what? He humbled himself. 
and took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So obviously the moment pride takes control and it tends to manifest itself in a fondness to scrap, a fondness to argue, a fondness to fight over things. It's not Christ's way. It doesn't reflect Christ's character. It's a poor and embarrassing reflection on us personally or in whatever context it happens. That's why I said this is an embarrassing moment. I want to elaborate on this just slightly more. I'm not sure if I gave these points. If I did, now it's time to bring it up. One of the reasons is because it reveals of these disciples how totally self-absorbed and stuck on themselves they were. Why do I say that? They hadn't, obviously had not heard a word, at least in the sense that it really had any powerful effect on them. It's like they had not heard a word of the opening verses of our our text for today. Look back at verse 21, and I think you'll see this. Here's Jesus talking to them and saying this, Behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. Would you say that's pretty serious? But Jesus has announced that one of the twelve is going to be a traitor, And then we read on, and truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. So now he's referring to the cross, and he's saying, all this as I've tried to prepare you before, it's going to happen, and I'm going to be betrayed by one of you, and I'm going to the cross, and I'm going to die there on the cross of Calvary. The only good thing you can say about what happened next is verse 23, and that much is good. It says they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing, but it seemed to just go over their heads. Because in the next moment, Luke says, they also got to arguing about who was going to be the greatest. Now let me try to put this in down-home terms. Let's suppose that you came to me, and you said, and forget about the fact that I'm, my job is to be a pastor. Just, just figure that I'm a Christian and a friend of yours and you come to me and you say, pray for me. Pray for me because tomorrow I'm going in for surgery and I'm having a quadruple bypass. Is that fairly serious surgery? Yeah, it really is. And I say to you, so you've just told me, hey, pray for me because I've got a really serious day in my life tomorrow. I mean, I might not even come out of this. Pray for me that the doctor will be successful. Pray for me that God will bless me and give me recovery from my problems. And I say to you, okay, but pray for me too because I'm going for, in for a job interview tomorrow and it represents a real opportunity for advancement for me. And you kind of say, okay. It just went right over his head. He didn't hear a word that I was saying. And what would that reveal about me? That would reveal about me that my response to you is perfunctory. I'm really not concerned about you, but I am concerned about me. I'm self-absorbed. I'm stuck on myself. And that's why this was such an embarrassing moment for the disciples because that's kind of what it revealed about them. Jesus was telling them those very types of things. He said, I'm going for the cross. Not not quadruple bypass surgery, I'm going for the cross. And they said, hmm, who's greatest among us? It also revealed, secondly, this, how totally out of touch with Jesus' life and teaching they actually were. Uh, See, John's presentation gives us this, and the others don't. That's why we'll see certain things in John and go to that and find some of these penetrating questions there later. Do you know what else happened at the Last Supper or that evening? Do you remember something Jesus did, and some folks think you should still do that today, and but Jesus did it, and it was really astonishing to the disciples, and Peter even objected to it. What was that? That's exactly right. He washed their feet. And he said, I've given unto you an example that ye should do as I have done. And some folks think that means that you should have that as an ordinance in your church. More typically, people interpret that to realize that you should serve each other and be humble as you've seen me do. That happened that happened right in the nearer context of this. And then they're, it's like that went over their heads too. And they're over here arguing about who's going to be greatest. Who's going to get the place that's on the top of the heap? And it's like 
the things that Jesus tried to teach them went totally over their heads. They didn't get it. And I'm telling you folks, when you and I operate this way, when we are controlled by pride, when we are stuck on ourselves, all of it just basically comes to point out the fact how totally out of touch we really are with what genuine Christianity is. I don't know what you think I think, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you so you know. I think preaching is serious. I think that it puts the person who does it, and by the way, John, or sorry, James says this, be not many masters or be not many teachers, knowing that ye shall receive the greater condemnation. In other words, you get up here and tell people all this stuff and you better try to live by it. You better take it seriously. You better be sincere. You better not just be up there mouthing off things that for other people. And so I take it really seriously and I look at my messages and really try to ask myself, how does this apply to me? And then sometimes I get messages that really convict me. And so then I try to remember what it was that I said in that message that convicted me. And more recently, I was talking in a message, I think maybe on Wednesday night, or maybe it was the Sunday night, I don't really remember, but I was talking about uh, the subject of humility, and we talked about the verse that's after the verse in 1 Peter 5 that's in our bulletin for today. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due season. And I, I opened up the message by saying that, you know, the way up is down and humility is the way forward. And I got to thinking about that and kept thinking about that. To me, it was just an easy way to remember the gist of what I was trying to say. Humility is the way forward. And we were talking about, you know, your prickly persons list. Because everybody has one, right? I mean, everybody has some people that harder to get along with or they've kind of jostled you lately and you, whatever. So you have your prickly persons list. And how do you go forward with those people if you're, react in pride and if you come back at them in turn in kind doesn't get much accomplished does it usually makes the situation worse and it would reveal just as I'm saying to you this morning before I leave this point I'll repeat it again it would reveal just how out of touch we really are with what true Christianity is I had a story I wanted to tell you. It really resonates with me because I had something similar happen in my own life, so I think I can, I think I can identify with the very story I want to tell you, but it's the story of a man who was a scholar and a professor. And one day he appeared in a class, a, a college class, and so here's a, an older man. He actually was at the place in his life that he had white hair, so to speak, and he obviously didn't fit in a college class with 19 and 20 years old, 20 year olds, but that's exactly where he was. And uh, the thing that was really unusual about it was this man was not only older and a scholar himself, but this is actually the person that I'm speaking of was actually Alexander von Humboldt, who lived in the 18th and 19th century. He was a renowned German naturalist and scientist. And it's kind of interesting that in the class, the professor who taught the class was actually a scholar himself and he even in one point in his lecture quoted as his authority for his point von Humboldt and here he is the man von Humboldt sitting in the class so someone asked him later why are you in that class doesn't didn't seem like a scholar or a person like that would need to be in that class and this was his answer this is kind of interesting to help me review what I had neglected in my youth. Well, I better clarify. I didn't say I could identify with this because I'm a scholar and was in a certain situation like that. I just remember back, I, was it 2010? I can't, I'd have to go back and look at my records. <laughs> I just remember when I got invited and was interested in taking a hunting trip to Colorado. And the state of Colorado, as most states today, required that you have a hunter safety card. Well, I didn't have one. I didn't have one for the simple reason that when I came to Pennsylvania and went down there to the courthouse to buy my first hunting license, the lady said, did you have a hunting license in the state that you came from? And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, fine, and wrote me out my hunting license, and I've had a hunting license ever since. And I've been around hunting and hunted since I was old enough to hold a gun in my hands. 
But the state of Colorado, like most states today, said if you're coming to our state to hunt, we want to see a valid hunter safety class or card. I didn't have one because I've never been in, in a class here in, in Pennsylvania. So they have it trimmed down now, but I, so I applied. And the nearest one to get me as quick as I could in this class and through it was in Cassville. And I went down there to that class and walked in. The class was might near full. And I walked down there and went in that class, and I was surrounded by, I mean, it had to be 30 11-year-olds. <laughs> I'm serious. And I, I thought, this is really interesting, you know. And so I didn't know what else to do except go down and go in there and take my seat just like all the rest of them did. And I listened to the guy, and I could appreciate the fact that the different teachers really tried to put it on a level for those 11-year-olds. In fact, really, they didn't know. I maybe could tell this. I don't know whether the 11-year-olds, but they were basically teaching from the test. And I could appreciate that because they wanted the kids to get it you know, I just encourage anybody who who's, has to go through this, you know, you, if you have to go take the hunter safety class, they're not against you. They want you to pass. They really do. They want to encourage hunters. They want to encourage youth hunters. They want you involved in, the, in that opportunity that Pennsylvania so richly affords us. So they're, they're not out to get you. They want you to pass. And I got all that. So, uh, you know, I'm sitting there, but it never hurts. It never hurts. It never hurts to be refreshed on things that you've known for a long time. It never hurts to be refreshed on those things. And that's why I said I could identify with this. But I think it behooves us, like the professor who answered the class. You know, we're never too old to learn. We've never arrived. And that, that, that's what really sort of mitigates against this whole thing that was going on with the disciples is this mentality that I should be on the top of the pack when the real mentality that we should have as Christians is one of humility like Mary sitting at Jesus' feet trying to figure out what can I learn today? Because I haven't arrived. I haven't stopped the growth process. None of us has, Beloved. And we're offered opportunities every day to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And isn't it embarrassing? Isn't it embarrassing when we lapse into these times when we, dis when we display our carnality so evidently to other people? Pride takes over. We're stuck on ourselves. We're self-absorbed. Worrying about how we're going to come out on the top of the pack. Well, let's get to our next thought because we do have some time constraints here this morning. Um, so where does this lead? When, when this kind of thing happens, what does it lead to? And this is a focus on verses 24 and 25. I'm going to give you three things. I don't have time to talk as much as I would like to about each of them. But the first and most obvious thing that you see in verse 24 is it leads to friction. There was strife. If you're going to go to somebody and say, I'm better than you are, that's likely to sort of not get the best response. It'd be wonderful if all of us had so grown in grace that someone came to us and said, I'm better than you are, and we said, yeah, I know. But we don't typically respond that way. And in point of fact, it might not even be true when someone tells us that. But... It's a turnoff, that's for sure, when people act that way because the Bible says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble and most people tend to respond the same way. You ever notice that? Whenever you're around somebody who's constantly putting himself forward, the only thing they talk about is themselves. All they do is brag about their accomplishments. All their stories tell about them. It just is sort of a, okay, you know, you just sort of, listen but it's not very warming or inviting and we don't want to be that way because it leads to friction or strife the second thing that we notice here is it leads to self-importance or self-promotion now do you notice what jesus said jesus told them here's how it is in the world but you're supposed to be my disciples but here's how it is in the world so we look at this verse and he says this the kings of the gentiles verse 25 notice this the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. 
So here's how it is out there in the world where people aren't necessarily converted. Greatness is symbolized by being over people. Greatness is symbolized by exercising authority over people. Being over people is kind of the general idea. But in the next verse, if you look what Jesus has to say about that, he, he, he says, but ye shall not be so. That's a worldly concept. Self-promotion and self-importance to define our greatness, to define our accomplishment by how many people are under us or how many people we can lord it over, which is exactly why you have an exhortation that's given by Peter, by the way, who had to kind of learn this lesson the hard way and was the recipient of some of this teaching of Christ on more than one occasion he wrote this verse that we see in the bulletin for today. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. And when he wrote to elders or preachers, one of the things that he said to them, neither as exercising lordship over God's flock. And I hope I'm never that way. I tell you, if I ever am, just come tell me. Just come tell me you're coming across that way. I want to know it. Because in all of my life when I have seen that, it has always been something that has turned me off. And I don't even mind saying this over the air, but my expression for it was, and I, I don't know if we still have people like this, but it used to be that in certain circles you had, what I called them Baptist popes. And to me, that's the farthest thing from what you should be and what you're called to be, whether you're a pastor or you're just a, a, you're a Christian, in, just in general, a Christian. You don't define your, your greatness like the world defines it. Because as I said earlier, the way up is down and the way forward is humility. And the third thing that we see is criticism of others. This leads to criticism of others. And I, I can demonstrate this in both the nearer and the farther context. Could I ask you, let's just take a moment, we won't do much, but turn to Mark chapter 9. I want to acquaint you with one of these earlier accounts that I alluded to, and you didn't get a chance to see it, but let's just do this. Let's take a moment to look here real quickly. So this is the context that Mark was talking about when uh, they had this argument about who would be greatest. And verse 33 tells us this because it says, he came to Capernaum and being in the house, he asked them, look at this. How would you like to be asked this question? What is it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? And they were embarrassed. This is, I say, it's an embarrassing moment. Why were they embarrassed? They held their peace, it says, because they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Oh, he'd caught them red-handed. Oh, he'd, he'd just caught them red-handed, and they were embarrassed. And so, <clears throat> a little further down in the story, not much, but a little further, after Jesus gives the illustration of a child, it says that John spoke up, verse 38, and John answered him, so this is all meant to be a part of the, of the, of the flow here, John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name and he followeth not us and we forbade him because he followeth not us. What was John saying? John was saying, hey, Peter, James, and John, us three, we're kind of the top tier. Peter's the leader, but us three, we're sort of the top tier. And we found this guy, he's out here doing these works in your name, but he's not under us. He's somewhere else. We don't really know where he's coming from, but he's out there doing works in your name, but it bothered them. He didn't have any connection to us. He's not under us. We're supposed to be the top tier here. <laughs> don't you see it? I mean, it's this carnality that's shot through us, this pride that is shot through human nature, evidencing itself in kind of a roundabout way because when we criticize other people, it's usually for two reasons. It's either because we're upset with them, number one, or number two, 
because it's a way to advance ourselves and show ourselves to be better than they are. Hello? I'm just giving you the down-home straight facts. Me too. It's for all of us. And what did Jesus say to him? Jesus said this, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. All right, so he's from a different church. So he's not from your church. So he's not in our group. You can handle that, can't you? You can kind of realize that the kingdom of God is bigger than the four walls of any church, can't you? You can kind of rejoice even when there are folks out there that maybe you need to disagree with. You just don't able to meet them eye to eye on every point. But you can rejoice in the good that's accomplished. And I'll tell you, uh, this week to me really brought that out. I mean, you know, if you go back over the years, I mean, there were some things that Billy Graham chose to do that many of us were uncomfortable with. But the man passed away and this week you had you know the the honors that were given to him and the eulogies that were delivered and all this type of thing and then you had his funeral and then you have people taking pot shots i saw a couple of those people saying nasty things about him i'll tell you what that got me that upset me that really upset me i might have certain differences here or there over points but i'm telling you what there are many people, put your hand up if you were saved under the, some kind of a crusade or a ministry of Billy Graham. Anybody here this morning? One, two, how many more? I'm missing you? There's people all over the place you can talk to like that. Well, you know what? I'm really glad you're here today and you're saved. And it's not bothering me that that's how you got saved. I'm glad you're saved and here today. Wow. I read that about this supposed conservative columnist, George Will, that, well, he says he's an atheist, so he wrote a nasty car article about Billy Graham. I said, well, got a little problem. That bothers me. Anyway, back to our story. So they criticized this guy. Then you had, and I, I really, <laughs> sorry, I got to pick up the pace here a little bit, but um, then you had this other instance that was really very close at home, and Mark has an account of this, but I want to use Matthew, so if you don't mind, we'll turn a couple more pages and we'll be right at it. Mark chapter 26, or I'm sorry, Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. Just keep your bulletin in your Luke 22 chapter, and then slide over here to Matthew 26. It's, it's right here at hand. Let me show you this. Here's this criticism of others, and this is right in the nearer context because this happens right there in the in the Passion Week when Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and he stops at this house for supper and we pick the story up in Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 6 and it says this, now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper there was a woman came unto him having an alabaster box, we would say flask a very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat but when his disciples saw it they had indignation saying, to what purpose was this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work on me, for ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily, and this is the thing to get, Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. And you know why they criticized her? Because she embarrassed them with her humility. She embarrassed them with her godliness. It was her only crime. Her only crime was being so deeply spiritual that she understood more of what was coming in the life of Jesus than they did. She understood that his death was imminent. She understood how much Jesus Christ meant to her. And she took the most expensive thing she had. She took the greatest thing she had and brought it. And then they had the, they had the kutzpah again. They had the incredible arrogance to fault her as if she had made a waste. I don't think anything you can give to Jesus is a waste. 
but it was a way of making themselves look better. It was a way of kind of dodging around the fact that they were embarrassed because she embarrassed them with her, her piety and her humility, and so they criticized her to promote themselves. So she's a waster. Wow. Folks, I'm, I'm just going to tell you something. You'll have times in life, I want to get beyond this, but I, I, I just want to share this because you're going to have times in life, if, you, if you're alive and breathing, all right, and you're trying to do something for the Lord, I'm just telling you right now, no one is exempt from it. You're going to have times like this when people criticize you. Don't let it get you down. Look at it, evaluate it, see what's in it, but don't let it get you down. Because it happens and sometimes it comes from rude sources or sources that don't have it right or whatever else and it's very discouraging. You cannot let that get you down and make it bring you to the place in your Christian life that you're defeated and you quit. Because the Satan will hammer you that way every time. Little story. There was a young man named William. This is a true story. It was a young man named William. He really felt that God had burdened him and spoken to his heart about evangelism. And in particular, he really felt that God had burdened him about evangelism on foreign fields. And so he had written a pamphlet to this effect, and that had become somewhat known. And then he was invited to a local group of ministers to preach and so he got up and he preached on Isaiah 54 verses 2 and 3 and the purpose of his sermon was to talk about how important it was to for the church to embrace evangelism particularly missionary evangelism and reach foreign fields where people were who had never known Christ as Savior well he was young at the time and he didn't have much education and he certainly didn't have a lot of experience and so when he got done with his sermon, one of the older ministers who was there listening to him told him to sit down. And then he went on basically to critique and take apart and gainsay his message. Well, you know for a young preacher who doesn't know much and who's just trying to share his heart, that can be devastating. And it was very discouraging to him, but he pressed forward with the belief that God was burdening his heart for foreign missions, and not too long afterwards, he ended up in India. When he got to India to share the gospel with people, he was there seven years before he had a convert. And then one day, a man came to him under deep conviction, and he won him to Christ. This man that he won to Christ that day was the first of a countless host of people that William ended up leading to Christ. Now that William has passed into eternity and has become an immortalized part of church history, church historians look back upon the life of William and call him the father of the modern missions movement. I'm talking about William Carey. The 19th century witnessed an explosion of evangelistic and missionary activity, and much of it is traceable to the work of William Carey, as we saw when we looked in these biographical messages. Warren Wiersbe has a book that he's entitled, In Praise of Plotters. I like that title, In Praise of Plotters. This is what he had to say. Although William Carey only had an elementary education, by the time he was in his teens, he could read the Bible in six languages. He later became professor of Oriental languages at Fort William College in Calcutta. That's India, of course. And his press at Sarampore provided scriptures in over 40 languages and dialects for more than 300 million people. His well-known statement, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God, has become a motto for many. Small beginnings make great endings. So it will happen. It's just a part of life. Don't let it make you quit. And last, for which we don't have much time, but if, fellas, we can bring that up, what cures this problem 
Well, you know, when you go back, I'll just challenge you because I don't have time to say what I would like to say about it at this point. But as I say, the problem of arguing about who was going to be the greatest, it came up on other occasions, it came up here. And if you go back and you look at all the instances and you read them, you're going to find that Jesus always went back to two object lessons. I mean, if it's simple and it works, why improve on it? Why invent the wheel? It's just sort of enlightening because like I told you in that message on Matthew chapter 5, when the question was good for nothing. Remember that? And I said, if you can remember salt and light, you've got it. It just is. Jesus chose those two things. Well, when Jesus wanted to teach his disciples about true greatness, when Jesus detected them arguing about all these things, he always came back to two object lessons. And the first was a child. Right? In fact, in Matthew 18, we won't turn there, but that account says Jesus, as soon as they had that question, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven, it says in the very next verse, Jesus called a little child and set him in the midst of them. And then in the verse after that, it says, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as a little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that children don't have a sin nature and don't evidence their own version of pride at times? No, uh uh-uh, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying you need to figure out what characterizes a child and learn from it. And what characterizes a child is that a child is humble in the sense that a child always realizes that he, he naturally assumes, let me put it this way, any child, young child, naturally assumes that he's under somebody, not over somebody. I'm just trying to put it out there where we can all get it. That's what children are. They understand. You know, now, I think it was last Sunday evening, but it was last Sunday. And I walked out into that foyer, and people were leaving after the service, and I noticed little Toby working his way out. And I don't know whether it was Josie or one of the other sisters that he was given this number to, or whether it was Grandma, but he was doing this number. But you know the truth of it is when you look at a little child, there's something to learn. And what you can learn is this. They, they don't make any pretense. I mean, they want mama or they want a bigger sister or they want, if they're gonna, they just naturally assume there's got to be somebody there to show them the way. They don't assume that they're over people. They assume that they're under people. And Jesus said, that's what you need to learn. Don't make the assumption you're over people. Don't act like you're over people. Act like you're serving people. Act like you're under people. That's what a little child has going for him. And then the other thing that he brought out was a servant, and I don't have time to show it to you in the other context, but right here in our our very chapter of of Luke chapter 22, notice verse 27, Jesus brought this out. For whether He actually brings them both out. For whether is greater he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth is not he that sitteth at meat. Yeah, so in the world... It's if people are over you or or you're you're over people. But Jesus said, I'm not that way. I'm among you as one that, what? Serves. So he brought out servant. Constantly, it was either a child he got to make his point or a servant that he used to make his point. Verse 35, as I say, he brings it out here in this chapter. And he said unto them, That's not what I want. Verse 35 in Mark 9, we're not going to take the time to turn to that. So what is the trait that a servant exemplifies? Well, of course, it's servanthood. And why is that? And this is the little takeaway I would like you to get. Because if the child realizes that he expects to be under people, not over people, the servant realizes that his cause or his purpose or what he's doing in life is other than himself. And we see that over and over again. When the man comes in, when the master comes in, he expects to sit down and the servant serves. When, <laughs> when we, we were at the place in Copan on the trip and we got our night's rest and we, uh, they gave breakfast was part of it, so we assembled there in the thing for breakfast. And Pastor Sam was sitting right to the end of me this way and there was a, a lady that was supposed to be our waiter or waitress or whatever you say was sort of off to the side and and I was trying to figure out how some of the kids, I think, didn't realize they could get coffee or juice, and, and they wanted some juice, and they didn't have juice. And so 
I was trying to ask Pastor Sam, how do we get that lady over here? And all of a sudden, he turned, and he just sort of looked at her, and he says, Hoven. And I laughed. It, it just cracked me up because Hoven is the word for a young person. But he, and I laughed, and he said, no. He said, that's what they, that's what they call them, Hoven. Now, you expect the person who's the hoven, you expect the person who's the waiter or waitress, when you come into the restaurant, their cause is you, not them. You're the customer. You're there for the meal. They're supposed to serve you. That's what a servant is, folks. And when we, in life, this is the lesson that Jesus wants every single one of us, from the person in the front to the person in the back, from this pulpit to the guy on the deacon or the bench on the back. This is what Jesus wants us to realize. You go to the child, and what does he realize? He realizes he's under people, not over people. You go to the servant, and what does he realize? I'm here for someone else, not for myself. How does that apply to me? Well, first and foremost, I'm here for Jesus. I'm not living my life for me anymore. I'm here for Jesus. Secondly, I have to realize what this says in 1 Peter 5. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. I have to realize I'm here for you. And we all have to realize those things. There's a story about a boy that went to college and he graduated and he came back. His dad gave him a job in the store. And so when his dad gave him the job in the store, he came in the next morning ready to start work. And his dad said, okay, get a broom and sweep the store before we open for the day. And the son said, dad, he said, I'm a college graduate. And his dad said this, I know, son, but don't worry, I'll show you how to do it. I'm glad you could laugh because that's where I want us to end on that. I want us to, you know that, we just come back Jesus will show us how to do it. We come back. We come to church to be reminded of who the master is, how the master lives, what true Christianity is, how to show it in my life. And we realize, boy, I haven't been doing so good here. I haven't been doing so good there. And I come to church or I'm in whatever other context and the Lord says, here it is. Take this away. Remember a child and remember a servant. And you'll get it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have. And I know, Father, in the depths of my heart that this message is for everybody. And there's really not anybody here this morning that it doesn't touch, that it doesn't apply to. There's really not anybody here this morning that doesn't fall short. We all do. Like the apostles, we all have those embarrassing moments when we see that we haven't displayed a real understanding of Christianity and our reactions have been poor. Thank you that you never lose a teaching moment. Thank you that you're always the master teacher, the master mentorer. You give us more chances to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You give us more chances to look at little kids, not to see that they're perfect, but to see what they represent, humility. To look at people that are true servants, to see what they do. They want to see the cause of the other person advance, so they work hard. 